What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Stein from the J. Stein Law Firm, and welcome to the next episode of Sports and Torts, where each week we sit down with our peers, colleagues, and friends and discuss sports, law, and business. As I've discussed many times before, my law firm focuses 100% on handling cases for individuals who are hurt because someone else did something wrong. We handle cases involving car wrecks, truck wrecks, slip and falls, dog bites, you name it. If someone gets hurt badly enough because someone else did something wrong, we probably handled it. I am a plaintiff's lawyer. My guest today is also a lawyer, and he also handles the exact type of cases that I handle. However, he handles them from the complete opposite side of the case. His firm is hired by all the major insurance companies to defend the exact types of cases that I file. He is a defense lawyer. So on paper, we are opponents. We should be opponents. But in reality, we take very similar approaches to representing our clients and handling our cases. And we go about it, I think, in a very professional manner to get the best results we can for our clients. So I'm hoping our conversation today can, set, can shed some light on how we go about doing our job, I think, the right way. My guest today is the one and only Mr. Jason Darniel, the founding and named partner of the Georgia insurance defense firm, Gower Wooten Darniel. Jason, welcome, my friend. Good afternoon, Josh. It's nice to see you here rather than our usual meeting spot of Laster's. It's a little brighter and uh, cleaner in here. But. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. We're at my office. It, it is nice and clean and bright. It's a nice day. Uh, we did we did try to bring a little spirit of Lasseter's to here, though. We've got uh, one of my new J. Stein Law Firm coolers. Um, we've got it filled up with Bud Light to, to signify, you know, Lasseter's. We've got some fireball in there that might make its way out at some point. We've got a celebration conversation about the George-Alabama game that we'll get to. Uh, I should have added that you are from Alabama. You are an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. Um, a very gracious fan, I might add, after last much now championship game. So we wanted to give we wanted to give Alabama a chance to talk today. So we'll we'll hit that stuff as well. Oh, well, that's good. No, congratulations. That was a great victory, and it was a fun game to attend. And as I'm from a split family with my wife and oldest daughter being Georgia fans, they were very excited. It, <laughs> it, it never gets old talking about it, hearing about it. I'll take a, take congratulations from the end of time. I'm here to the end of time, and we're going to spend a lot of time at the end of this podcast talking about it, so uh, get ready for that. But I first want to introduce you to the listeners, um, say know who you are. Uh, so please talk about your background, where you grew up, and what kind of work you're doing today. Well, I grew up, was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, as I listened to your previous podcast with uh, Moses, I was forced in kindergarten to choose whether or not to be an Alabama or an Auburn fan, and unlike Moses, I chose well. So... <laughs> You chose Al- you chose Alabama, so so that so Moses, uh, that's right. He he talked about growing up in in, in uh, Alabama, and that choice was given him. So that's a true story. That happened to you as well. It did. And my dad's from Houston, Texas, and went to Dartmouth, and my mother's from St. Louis, but was raised in Brussels, Belgium, and went to Mount Holyoke. And so when I went home, I said, "Well, who do we root for?" And they said, "I don't care." So your parents didn't push you one direction or the other, huh? No, not at all. I said, well, I live in Alabama, so I'm going to root for Alabama. <laughs> so I think you, from a football perspective, you made the right choice, right? Uh, we had a Bo Patel on here a couple weeks ago, an Auburn guy. We, we kidded with him that Auburn is a basketball school now. Uh, Alabama trucking along football. So you've, you've, had, you've went to the game against Georgia. You've been to a bunch of national championship games, right? I've been to five out of the last six. And uh, – 
three losses and two victories. <laughs> yes. So, so again, good decision about about choosing uh, choosing Alabama. Now, you went to college at Vanderbilt, though, right? So, so what brought you there? Well, we were with my parents being from other states. They didn't want us to go in state, and they said, "Please go look around." And you know, my dad really pushed hard to go to Dartmouth, and I showed up in New Hampshire in uh, February, and it was not my cup of tea. And I went and toured Vanderbilt, and just really enjoyed Nashville, and said. This is a good school where I can also get, you know, the benefits of going to a Southern college where football is important while also getting a very good education. Knowing you like I do, I think that the choice of Vanderbilt over Dartmouth probably was the right one. <laughs> I would agree with that. I don't think I would have lasted very long. <laughs> I don't think you would have lasted very long up there either. But Nashville, on the other hand, is a fantastic city. So you were there uh, late 90s? 95 to 99. Yeah. Now, the city's grown a ton since then but even back then fun place to go to college right it was great now downtown is a lot different though i was there two weeks ago and we hung out at the bourbon street blues and boogie bar which is same one we hung out in printer's alley in college it's just now it's surrounded by three-story bars versus it used to be kind of tucked as a hole in the wall now what's that main drag that goes right through downtown nashville uh, it's broadway broadway would college kids go down there or is that more for tourists and People coming in from out of town. We would we went down there a fair amount. We went to Tootsie's. We went to Merchants. There was a place on Second Avenue called the Beer Cellar. We'd go to, and then there was a big warehouse bar, Buffalo Billiards, that had a Havana lounge upstairs that we hung out a good bit. But we did stay around campus quite a bit because there are uh, several good music venues and just several good rundown bars. Yeah, I've always had a good time in Nashville. Now, for law school, you did go back to Alabama, yes. right, and went to University of Alabama. What, how'd that decision go? I was actually in uh, Jamaica on spring break senior year, and uh, I got a phone call. I told my parents, don't call me unless something's bad. And Check it out for a week. <laughs> and we were staying at a hotel. If you remember, they didn't have phones in the room that could call out. You had to call the front desk. They would call internationally and call you back. And we also didn't have cell phones. Right. <laughs> and I got a call that from my mother that said, uh, law school wants to talk to you immediately. And I said, well, don't you think it can wait? She's like, no, the dean's called three times, and I was afraid there was something wrong with my application or whatnot. And he called and said, we want to offer you a full ride. And uh, I said, that's great. I'll call you when I get back. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> well, the answer was yes, right? And I did plan on going back to Alabama to practice. And, you know, if you were going to practice in that state, it was a very good thing to go to that school. And it's, it's also – shockingly a very good law school no it is it is it's in, in Birmingham lots of great lawyers come out of there now you of course live in Georgia was that always a plan to move to Georgia or just kind of happen no I actually after school I went back clerked for a judge for a year and then worked for two different insurance defense firms clerked for a judge in Alabama yes in Montgomery okay. where I was from and, and then ended up one of the guys I worked with at one of the insurance defense firms convinced me to move over here he's like well you're coming over here to go out almost every weekend anyway why don't you move here got it all right well i do want to get to that but to, but talking about the the clerkship for the judge for the benefit of the listeners that aren't in you know our world the legal world so what is that job if you say i'm working for a judge what are you doing what are your responsibilities back then it was a little bit of everything that i would literally do research for him i would draft orders but then I'd also, once he signed it, and this was before we had e-filing for everything, it was coming in, but 
he'd be like, all right, well, I need you to go then run to the copier, make the envelopes and mail it out. And so I'd also go sit in the courtroom, listen to arguments. We did both criminal and civil. And so the judge would have me sit there, take notes. We'd discuss that. I was uh, charged with babysitting jurors, which was quite a task that every time they'd be out, they'd knock on the door. I'd have to go handle questions, get to everybody. So it was a lot, a little bit of research and a lot of coordination. And, and were your days spent sitting in a courtroom? For wow. the most part, either in the courtroom or in the judge's office. And when we were in the office, he was always working. I mean, it was either writing orders, having conference calls. He'd have me come sit in his office with conference calls or he was a, a real friendly judge who liked lawyers to talk and work it out. So he would, if there were disputes, he'd bring them in, have them sit in his office, and they'd have a discussion that would be much more civil when it was in front of the judge and would get worked out. And I'm sure he reminded them that, you know, the decision I come up with is binding. Y'all can come up with something that maybe you both can live with. You know, I've heard, I've heard plenty of judges kind of, you know, push, push parties down that direction. You don't want me ruling on this. I suggest you guys figure it out. No, he was very good at that. He'd be like, you know, I'm kind of leaning towards doing something I don't think either of you are going to like, so I think it's probably in your best interest for you to work this out. And 99 out of 100 times, it worked it out. Worked out. So I, I wish there was some mechanism where all lawyers could get the experience of working for a judge out of law school. It's a coveted position to get. Um, so it only goes to, like, the people that are very, very, you know, credentialed and, and, and you know, well-earned. Do you think that experience has shaped the type of lawyer that you are and brought you certain perspective on handling cases now? Yes, I think because when you see that, you know, you're a lowly law clerk, and there were certain lawyers who treated you like dirt. And I never forgot that, and I, I thought it was really important that it taught me how to treat people and interact with people. And it also showed me that, you know, there are plenty of lawyers, and you know this as well as I do, who like to fight for the sake of fighting. And judges dislike that. I mean, and because there was, I had access to six other judges, and they'd come in and chat all the time, and that really made it, um, you know, interesting to see. They're like, I really don't want y'all to fight, work it out, get along, and the lawyers who got along better with each other got more of what they wanted. And have you seen that play out in your practice? That taking that approach has has proven beneficial not only to your day to day handling of cases, but growing your practice, which we'll we'll discuss that in a little bit, but. Seen that play out? I think so. I mean, as you know, we all make mistakes. We all get put in binds. And if you don't help somebody out when they're in a bind, when you need it, they're never going to help you out. And I think it's a cycle that ends up causing more problems than helping you out because whatever you're not going to give a favor for is really not that important at the right. end of the day. That's right. So you transitioned to an insurance defense job. Was that because you knew somebody there or did you have a desire to start handling those kind of cases? It was uh, the job market in Montgomery is not robust, to say the least. And I got a, a job offer I couldn't, resi- you know, couldn't turn down. And I did know several of the guys there. And the judge I worked for had said, go learn under uh, Alex Holtzford. He goes, go work under him for a couple of years, decide if that's what you want to do. But you'll learn how to practice law by working underneath him. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I kind of, I won't say fell into it, but very similar how I interviewed with a, with a, with a firm, Progressive Insurance, who I know you do work for now, their in-house counsel. And I liked the people who I interviewed with. I liked um, the kind of work that they were talking about doing. And so 20 years later, like, I'm still in those cases. I guess I just easily could have fallen into a business litigation firm or family law or something. Um, well, but, you know, what's interesting is I still hear your name. 
at Progressive? Yes. So, you know, you obviously did such a good job and, you know, didn't burn any bridges when you left or any, even now they're like, Oh, that's Josh. He's on that case. I used to love working with Josh. That's, that's funny. That's funny. You say that. No, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it, it, it has come up. I worked at Progressive for two years. Um, Jeff Yashinsky, uh, Tara Waller, great you know i could go on and on and on with the names of folks over there um and the adjusters there's still some that are the same ones i mean they've been there for 20 plus years and i'll see their name pop up and i'm like hey remember me like actually i do remember you so i think that you know i think that that um i think that matters right i think that i think that how you treat people matters i think how you go from one job to the other matters you were telling me uh last week how um you know jobs you have you know future jobs that you have, have, have was it received or been hired for came from past you know, connections. So talk a little bit about that. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, Alex Holtzford, who I trained under, I was over, uh, he still does work for Progressive. He runs a big firm in Alabama. And I got a phone call from a Progressive adjuster that says, hey, I haven't worked with you before, um, but I need you to help me out. And I, by the way, I went ahead and called and checked up on you. I talked to Alex. He had nothing but great things to say about you, so I know you're going to be fine to work with. But I just wanted to let you know I've already run a background check on you. So that that is you getting a new layer of business because a former colleague of yours, you know, recommended you. Yes. And had you left that job, you know, burned bridges or sour grapes or went the wrong way, you wouldn't have gotten that client. Right. And I mean, it was. You know, it's been very important that, you know, I still send clients back to them in Alabama and they'll still send me work here in Georgia. And in fact, when we opened an Alabama office, I called Alex and said, hey, I'm not coming to try to take your business. I just have an opportunity to open this office here and we're looking, you know, more to do this. But, you know, even it's something like that, that he goes, you don't. You know, you don't owe me a call, but I appreciate it. But, you know, you never want to burn bridges because you never know when these people are going to come back into your life That's at right. a later date. That's right. So what's what's the – take us back to moving to Georgia when you moved from Alabama. Um, didn't go to law school here. You don't, you don't have that built-in network of graduating from one of these local schools. You don't really know anybody. Like, how do you start building a reputation and a network and, and rise to where you are today? Luck. Oh, come on. I don't believe that. That's maybe a little luck, but luck, luck only comes when you put you know, the, the work and skill into it. So, no, what happened is, is I, I did work for uh, a buddy of mine convinced me to move over here. I waved in. I said, I've never taken the Georgia bar. And I ended up at Kremen Bassler and Harry was a great boss. But I mean, I was 30 and 31 when I started working for Harry and he just was not into trying these bigger cases and he just let me go with it where as you know at defense firms usually the younger associates aren't going to get to well we'll be allowed to go take the depositions but we won't be allowed to go try the case he let me go try the cases now you know you've got to pick and choose the right cases to try but the first three they let me try over there were in white county um forsyth county and then I think in Fayette County. So it was all real conservative venues. No, good luck, Jason. Have some fun. <laughs> yeah. And I got great results. And yeah. so um, the clients started liking me then. And then we were taking a, uh, a construction defect deposition. And there were, I think, 12 lawyers. And I just did a really good job. Now, I have to give credit. I had an architect with me as my paralegal at the time. And so she... Feeding you questions? Feeding me questions. And then I went with it and got... 
the architect on the stand just fumbling that really did help resolve the case. And so many people called my boss at the time and said, hey, he did a great job. They didn't have to. They just did it that he gave me more and more work. So so what you mean is there are these cases, especially on the construction side, where an injured plaintiff or if it's a property issue, whatever, they sue 10 different parties, right? The contractor, the engineer, the architect, the plumber, the you name it. And so you got like 10 defense firms in one room with one case. And if you're the one taking the lead on that, you got all these eyes on you. And a lot of times they're very senior attorneys that are, you know, kind of in the room too. So if you can wow them, I can totally see how that would make an impression on them to call your boss and be like, hey, let this dude get some more work. That's awesome. I mean, and, and you having those early jury trials, that's one thing at Progressive I was lucky about was that they'd give me these, you know, $25,000 max cases that they are what they are. Like, you can't really mess them up. It's like, Josh, go, you know, go try. We called them. Thursday night fights. Remember those? Magic record <laughs> right. Thursday night where you just show up and you would just get what you got. Um, that experience just pays so much dividends down the road. I know it's hard to get in the courtroom these days and, you know, getting in there at an early age. And yeah, I made mistakes, but you learn from them. And it's harder now. Um, depositions are harder for the younger folks to get. Trials certainly are. Um, so there's got to be, and you know, you're from, I know y'all, y'all do a lot of, of, of work to train your younger, younger folks, but you got to be creative, right? There's just not as much opportunity as there once were. No, I try to bring the younger guys to sit with me, but then it gets into a strategy call that, you know, I like to be sitting at the table by myself because these days, you know, usually on the other side, there are going to be four or five people and it, you know, I, it's no big surprise, but I like to stand up and say, look at everybody over there. It's just little old me here. And, you know, and so it's harder for me to bring them, but, and it's harder to get the authority to let, you know, them try the smaller cases because even the smaller ones these days, they're getting so looked at. That and, and then from a billing perspective, right? I mean, you can't, you can't have multiple lawyers necessarily billing for the same, same event. And so you have to look at it from a, from a law firm owner perspective as, you know, you're investing the time for them to learn how to do it, not necessarily being able to collect on their dollar, I imagine. Right. When I did defense work, that was one of the things we talked a lot about is like they might, the client might not pay, you know, the, the, the dollar for them attending this, but we have to have them get that experience, he or she. You look at it the same way? Right. I mean, sometimes you just have no choice. And I mean, that's why I do love the the PD subros and the super small, you know, state farm, $5,000 little, you know, you didn't pay for my car or jury trial. We'll make them make the young people go try those just because it's, it's experience. And y'all do some flat fee stuff too, right? We, we do a fair amount of it because okay. can you explain what, how that, what that means? It's uh we charge a set amount and depending on the different carriers, we divide litigation into phases. You know, it's, we have some that is divided into six or seven phases, some that are divided into two or three and so, you know, if a file comes in, a check comes with it. And I think the benefit of that is, one, we get the money up front instead of waiting for a 45 to 60-day lag time. Two, we, have, we know a set amount's coming in because that means no time's going to be cut. And three, we also know what's expected of us because we have the phases very much delineated as in the work that's to be done in each one. And the carriers like it because they know they have a set cost and they're not going to have a runaway bill. It works for everybody, I think. I mean, I'm not in that model, but but from what you've told me, like it, it gives certainty all the way around. It allows you to, to, to staff it and work it the way that you feel is best. Insurance companies, they cap their litigation costs, so they're happy about it. Um, 
you know, y'all are on the forefront of doing that. I think a lot of more firms are going to go to that direction. I kind of jumped into to your philosophy at your firm without discussing the decision to open the firm, which which on the podcast, I always like to talk about people's kind of steps from, you know, wherever they were to to starting their own kind of venture. Um, so take us back to when y'all started the firm, who you started with and what made you just make the decision. Well, when I was at Crum and Bassler, um, I met Ann Gower and we ended up uh, started dating and got married while we were there. And we were tasked with doing all the client relationships. So Janu- typically in the beginning of the year in January, we'd fly out, we'd set up and we'd go literally January, February, March, fly out, meet with all the clients, which, you know, entailed a lot of dinners and fun times because you know most of these insurance people i know you typically well you know from the defense side but a lot of plant attorneys cmo these adjusters are just real difficult to deal with but you get them outside work they're just fun they're they're people too they want to have fun too and so we do all that and they kept asking they said well what's going to be the succession plan and we said we were working on it and we um we came up with a plan to buy harry out and we and he would he was the managing or oldest senior partner of Crim. Well, he wasn't the oldest. Uh, Crim's, who was, Crim's an interesting guy, just a quick aside. He was Bart Starr's backup. No kidding. In Alabama in 1953. You never know what you're going to learn on this podcast. I had no idea. <laughs> and he, Crim didn't have to take the Alabama bar either. He's an Alabama grad uh, because he was before they had a bar exam. And so, but um, we were going to buy him out because he was, and we were going to take it over, and we just never could quite come to a deal. And so at that point, Ann and I decided we needed to leave. We had told the clients about that, and so when we left, we walked out with seven insurance carriers and about 600 files. This is 2015. Yes. And the insurance carriers are ones we all heard about. We all heard of them. These aren't, these aren't small players. These are big players in the market. Right. And so y'all, y'all left with the foundation of great clients and lots of files and now it's like oh crap what do we do with all this right and we had a regis space lined up so we were in a regis space where i was in one office and and uh, robert johnson who's with us who's partnered our office were there and then we had uh andrea and amy who they came with us so it was the five of us and tim wooten was in another office building and so we got everything set up, and we had been planning. That one nice thing, our financial advisor, as we had been working through everything, and he's kind of a business coach as well, had met with us. And so he tasked me with coming up with a buyout plan, and Ann was tasked with coming up with running a business plan. So we had both in place. One day, like in the very, very beginning. Right. Most people wait until years and years and years down the road, but y'all were smart enough to have the foresight to do this on, on, on the front end. Right. And so – the. The only thing is we'd never been able to locate satisfactory office space. And so that's why we were in Regis for four months. And then we moved into Circle 75 and we had 14 offices. We're like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, we're just a nice little firm. You know, four lawyers, two paralegals. And then some of the clients that stayed at Crim and Bassler about six months in called us and then added us to the list and said, hey, we miss working with y'all. And it just kept growing and growing. And it, we were literally, and within a year, we were busting out of that space. 14 offices was not enough. Five lawyers, not enough. Fast forward six years later, y'all are at 20-plus lawyers, 
five physical offices. Yes. Am I getting those numbers right? Yes. So, so was that that was that a plan, or is that born out of hey, the work is here, we're going to staff it, we're going to do this work for our clients? The initial goal was to be much just a smaller size, you know, five to twelve, you know, lawyer firm, and try to keep just because we don't have, we try to keep it more as a family feel. And we've been blessed with so much work that we just were unable to staff it. And so that's why we've kept growing. And the clients have asked us, they said, well, are you willing to hire more people and we'll send you more work? And we've said yes. So the model's now changed that we're just, we're going to go with the work. Which, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, all we hear about is market, 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 get more cases, get good cases. Don't turn them down figure out how to have someone to work it, which today's day and age, it's harder and harder to find good people. But y'all seem to retain the folks that you want and you, you acquire good talent. What's your strategy towards towards accomplishing both of those goals? The main thing is, is well, which is, you know, most defense firms, as you know, have a billable hour requirement. We do not. I do not require FaceTime in the office. You're probably going to get 150,000 resumes after people hear this. No, no billable hour requirement, no FaceTime requirement. We do merit-based bonuses where, you know, at the end of the year, I look at your hours, I look at your revenue collected, and you're going to get a bonus based on that. If you don't have enough work, come to me. And that's what, you know, I have this talk with every one of my people, and I say, look, we've got tons of work. I'm, I give them out to you. You have plenty of work to do very well. If you don't, come talk to me, and we'll we'll get that fixed. But, you know, I have yet to have anybody come to me and ask for work, and everybody seems to be doing pretty well. So you mentioned that you started the firm with your wife. Yes. I'm sure everybody asks you, how is it working with your wife, being partners with your wife? Of course, Dana and me work together as well, so I can speak from personal experience about that. Uh, it works out very well for us. Um, talk about, you know, how you and Ann have, have set it up to where it, it, it works out nicely. It does. I mean, we— you probably see this as well. I laugh. Our offices are right across the hall from each other, but we just don't see each other that much at the office. She's busy. You know, her practice has shifted to primarily pre-suit, multiple competing compl- claims, demands. Um, you know, as her dad was Mr. Holt, <laughs> you know, that was his case. Her dad was a, a very successful plaintiff's lawyer, right. and is, so, I should say. And so she does mainly that. I do mainly the litigation side. So our practices don't cross over that much. And then we've got a good team in place to run um, the business side of it. Yes, we do communicate that. And unfortunately, we, for my brother probably, we've hired him. He's he's a uh, Wake Forest grad with a Georgia MBA who had been in commercial banking. He's now the CFO. So he kind of is a buffer. Hey, Marshall's the man behind the man, right? <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, so what percentage of your job or your day is spent like management, firm kind of vision man stuff, or actually working in cases? I probably spend about 10 to 15% management. Yeah, because you're still very involved in, your, in all your cases. Um, that's one thing. We probably had, what, 10-ish cases together over the years. Um, and like I said in the beginning, you know, Typically, you would you would think that guys like me and guys like you would be opponents, but you know we don't we don't necess- you know we work our cases I think the right way. You treat your cases the way I think they should be treated. Um, you look at it very objectively, very fairly. So talk about your approach when a case comes in, regardless of who the attorney is or whatever. But you know, how you like to handle your cases? 
been for the most part. Now there are some cases that we went on summary judgment, but most of the cases we come in have value. You know, there is a value that the disputes on whether you know the adjuster's value or the plaintiff's counsel's value is right. And typically, when you look at it, it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, you know, whether it's towards the plaintiff or not. So when I look at it, I say, well, okay, what's this case worth? What do we need to do to figure out? You know, here are the issues that my adjusters have, and here are the issues the plaintiff's counsel's having. We're all working towards the same goal, which is to resolve the case. And I think once everybody realizes that, it seems to go a whole lot better. Why? Why do some people not realize that? Um, it it shocks me. What you just said is very smart, but also pretty simple, right? right? And that's a compliment. Um, but there's so many folks out there, more than not actually, that don't approach it that way. And it's just fight, 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 fight. Take it very, very personal, which it is very personal. But some people, it's just like they just can't let go. Maybe it's a power thing. I'm not sure. But you see that, I'm sure, from plants lawyers too. And d- does it help move the ball down to try to get the case resolved? No. I mean, you know, when I don't know how it, they did it at your law school, but it, when I was there, we had this – litigator from Chicago came in and taught CivPro. And she's like, you need to file Rule 11 motions. You need to file for sanctions. If they don't do this, you always, you send letters and you get everybody sanctioned. So we were trained that it was always, you know, you got to fight, fight, fight. And once you get out and practice and you say, okay, I'm going to go waste a bunch of time tilting at windmills and you're not going to accomplish anything out of it. No, no. The, the, the discovery motions that are filed for no reason on every case, sometimes you have to do it. You filed them, I filed them. Um, never in cases we were together because right. we've never gotten to the point where there was that kind of a dispute. But um, to make that something that happens in every case, I don't think is, is helpful. And I think that some of it is, you know, you've got enough work that you're not looking to create work out of a file or churn a file like like some firms do. Um, maybe, that's a pro- maybe that's the thing. People just need more work to do. I don't know. That could be it. You know, I think the old model of firms is, you know, it used to be the the older lawyers took all the money and the younger lawyers did all the work. And, you know, they were trying to, you know, get it to the point where, hey, we brought in this much revenue. So, you know, you give it to me, you know, I need a bigger share. And I think we've tried to make that not an issue in terms of the way we compensate people and say, we're not going to act like that. Yeah. So explain for the listeners how your job interacts with like the insurance companies and the adjusters. So you're hired to defend their insured. You don't really get a choice of who that insured is or what they've done. Um, they've been sued. And now you fall into their lap. You evaluate the case, and then you're reporting back to the insurance company with, with your recommendations, your thoughts. So talk about kind of how you handle a file, what you're looking at, and what your interaction is with the insurance adjusters. Uh, typically, a file will come over. It'll come over in an email, and it'll come over with a claims file. And when I get it, I look at it. I'll go look at the meds, look at the venue, you know, see if who the providers are, and I'll give my initial recommendation. Just hey, here's what I, I think a range is. I said, but here's what we need to do: is we need to let me go eyeball the plaintiff, see if they're going to be a good witness or not. Let me eyeball our defendant. Let me see if they're going to be a good witness or not. And then, you know, that'll change the value either up or down. When you say eyeball, take their deposition, right. see how they're going to do. Because ultimately what, what both sides are doing is evaluating how that person's going to be in front of a jury. Because we know that the facts are obviously what's most important, but it's all about people. 
a jury is going to find for the person that they like, and they're going to hammer the person that they don't like. Right. Right. And so you go take, you know, one of my client's depositions, I'd say, hey, Jason, you're going to like this person. She's whatever. You have to, you're not going to take my word for it. You have to confirm that and then report back to the insurance company and say, yeah, this is a really nice person. She has no background that's of any question, no criminal history, didn't do anything wrong. She's really hurt, good doctors. Like, you're going to want to resolve this case. Right. Yeah. I mean, or if I take it and I was like, well, they cussed me out the whole time and, you know, they went to, some of the people that are notorious be like, no, this is one we can try. And, and, and ultimately, you're giving a, a dollar amount range. It's not your money. You don't have the checkbook. You can only give the recommendation, hey, I think you should pay between this and this. And then the insurance companies, they make their own decisions, right? And you're, you're left with kind of living by the authority they've given you, and you try the cases that you've got to try. Exactly. It's, it's their decision. My job is simply to evaluate it apprise them of what I think the risk is and then they make the decision at the end of the day and you know most of these big insurance companies have been doing this for a long time and they've got a bunch of smart people there so it's you know all they want from me is my opinion because I know the area better and you know the the lawyers on the other side that plays a big role in it, right? right? This lawyer knows what he's doing, not afraid to try cases, has experience in this type of an issue versus we know this lawyer is never going to try this case. They're going to hold this out as long as they can, and then they're going to fold at the, it, the 11th hour or whatever it might be, right? Those right. conversations happen all the time with the insurance companies. Right, and, I mean, and, I'm, and I'm sure just like on your side, you're like, well, I know this firm will try cases on the defense side, just like their firms that are notorious for this firm. Okay, we're going to have to go litigate. They're going to have to run up the bills. They're going to do this, and then they're going to settle, and we'll get more money at mediation. I mean, it's, you know, the firms out there both ways that are known like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, in terms of the time you spend marketing, y'all are, y'all are very good at attracting new business, keeping your existing clients, and growing, you know, to different offices with existing clients. What is your approach to, um, I mean, marketing is a big word, but, but how do you go about kind of, retaining clients and trying to get new ones we just you know we try to have as much personal interaction with the clients as possible because i think that's very important is i think it's a lost art these days in the you know digital world that zoom or you know texting and that and we try to go out and meet with them take them to dinner show them what we can do just kind of get to know them as people so they get to know us as people because at the end of the day a lot of these folks, they put their, you know, their evaluation from their higher ups are on how the lawyers they picked did, and so you need to get them comfortable. You know, our goal is to get them comfortable with us, so that then they'll, you know, be willing to go to bat for us. And as you know, when different people change companies, insurance companies, then they'll be like, "Hey, I want to bring my people on." And so you, we never want to burn bridges with anybody, and we want to make sure that we always, and then. We have a real simple is we try to strive to do you cost-effective, very good legal work. And, and there's, there's the punchline right there, or the sales, the, the slogan, I shouldn't I should and, say. And we're a customer service business. I mean, the insur- there are plenty of competitors out there of ours. And, you know, if we're not providing good service, there's no reason to use us. That's right. They can call someone down the street that's gonna gonna you know charge a very similar rate, and it's, it's hard to distinguish yourself. But you guys do a good job of that. I think what you said about the personal touch, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've told me about kind of out-of-town trips with adjusters you've gone on, Braves games tickets. Y'all go to all sorts of concerts, and you're always you're always doing something, getting 
vans or buses and the adjusters seem to just love you guys no that's fine i mean yeah we've we'll be in uh ohio in a couple months for a, an event that's pbr 10k that we've sponsored for a long time yeah and it's not a pbr 10k are you running it's not a race it's you drink ten thousand cans of pbr oh wow so it's you pretty good at that uh i can drink a few beers yeah <laughs> and, uh, and then we you know we do have we have braves tickets but yeah we've you know, go to the Rolling Stones this year. You know, and we always just try to do fun events. Uh, I hadn't done as much. I used to, uh, you know, one insurance company, I'd literally say, pick out a day. You know, we do it twice a year where I'd literally stay up all night smoking ribs and butts and take them and just make them a homemade barbecue launch. And then- it's, crea- it's creative, right? You have fun. They have fun. Uh, it makes your relationship that much stronger. I mean, I know y'all guys, you do a lot of uh, email listservs. You have something called TT that goes out. You do all sorts of things that are unique that keep people engaged, right? And, and, and top of mind with you. Right. And, you know, it was, I was talking to a lawyer of ours yesterday. He's like, well, I hadn't gotten a file or two this week. I was like, well, have you called up just to chat? Yeah. Have you done, you know, anything? And it's like, well, no, I need to do this. Yeah. Well, Amazing how you pick up the phone and three files follow because you want them to remember you. So what are some things that, that you see in your, in, your, in your cases that plaintiffs, lawyers like me do wrong and things that they do, you know, right that helps increase value of cases for, them, for their clients? I think, the, you know, the biggest thing is having a good client. You know, I mean, it's – I've run across it numerous times where I walk into a plaintiff's deposition – like I took one on Zoom recently, and the plaintiff had two birds on her shoulders, and we were videotaping it for trial. That it just it didn't play well. Like the whole two, two birds on her shoulder, giant birds, like two like live birds, like yes. cockatoos or yeah, just sitting on why, her sh- why? I don't know. You know, it's like that's not going to help your case, and you know, it's now I've heard of lawyers that have dressed their clients in like nice clothes to present well for a court, but to have to tell her client, take that damn bird off your shoulder. I don't I understand mean, we were, that. I was laughing with it, with the plaintiff's counsel afterwards. He's like, you know, I can't control her, you know? And I said, that's, um, you know, and I think, you know, one of the other things is, as you well know, if you get along with these adjusters, I think you get more money on your cases. You're talking pre-suit when you're... Or even or in suit. Even in suit, yeah. I, I so agree with you. I always try to start every conversation with the adjuster or the opposing counsel. I don't know them. I know most everybody at this point. I'm sure you know most. I mean, there's always going to be new people, but I know right. most of the defense attorneys now, or at least know some of their firm. So that first call is always got to be warm and just kind and just polite. You know, like there's sometimes you got to bow up, but I don't think you have to bow up on day one. You know what I mean? And so, so we try to take a very, you know, friendly approach on day one of the adjuster. Um, explain what, what about our case we think is important. Find out if there's something that we're missing, because sometimes, sometimes we are, you know. And then it's a much more kind of professional and collegial, if that's the right word, experience. No, I agree completely because, you know, I mean, they're looking at their files. I mean, especially if it's an admitted liability case. They're trying to come to a reasonable number, you know, to close it down. You're trying to come to a reasonable number. And I just think it's much more effective if two people yelling at each other are not going to come to. No, no. And the, and the adjusters and defense attorneys, they don't want to go to bat to try to get that extra X thousand dollars if they don't like the person. Agreed. Right. right? They're going to be like, screw you. We'll see you at court. Um, 
I do, before we move on to talk about Alabama, Georgia football, which I'm very excited to talk about, um, I want to thank you on the record for the Jeff Francoeur Home Run Derby invitation. Um, a lot of folks saw my pictures. I've been talking about it since the day it happened three months ago. That was one of the best days I've had. You, you invited Graham out there with me. You hit. I hit. I mean, y'all do a lot of those events around town, a lot of charity work. We do, and that was an awesome event. And You hit a heck of a home run. So. Not enough, though. I didn't hit enough. Hey, I didn't hit any. So, but I will say this. Frank Coor was such a great guy. He goes, look, he, he pulled me aside. He goes, singles and doubles hitters make millions, too. He, did. He, told, he, said, he said he told you, he said, hey, man, he said, you hit the ball, line drives harder than anybody else. He, he was great. Um, so that, that was that – was, any other charity events, you guys? I know the health, uh, children's health care is a big deal with you. We've all. done that. There's another one that uh, they do, Polo in the Pines, that that one's um, – what that is is all the money raised goes to one family and it's for childhood cancer and one of the families that's been on there several times was one of ann's sorority sisters from georgia so if you ever want to see me uh you know boohooing is when they start uh, having the kids come up and talk and it's you know it's just such a great organization raising all that money for the kids that good 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 for y'all it's always awesome when you can use your your law firm as a you know vehicle to to do something like that um so keep doing it. Keep signing up for the Francoeur Home Run Derby. Uh, I hope I make the invite list again because I, I will always say yes. Well, another one that uh, we were talking about is there's also the Choa John Smoltz Golf Tournament. So I'll embarrass myself too much over there. Well, no, hey, but just hang out with Smoltz. So, yeah. <laughs> Who's a hell of a golfer, by the way. I know, yeah. Well, there's, there's always, always things to look forward to. All right, well, let's switch gears. Um, Alabama, Georgia – National Championship game, I just poured us each a fireball shot because you were kind enough after the game um, when we first saw each other to buy me a shot, celebratory shot, and say congratulations to Georgia fans. Let me return the favor. So cheers. Cheers. I love being able to toast to Georgia football, and I love Alabama's fans' reaction to it because I said it that night, and I'll still say it. The graciousness of y'all's fans um, was noticed by Georgia people. You, you know, we didn't see each other that day, but you texted me that night. We talked, you know, the days after. Was there a little bit of Alabama folks that were kind of happy for Georgia or no way? I'm sure there were a few that were happy, but not many. Not many. <laughs> not many. Saban seemed like he was genuinely happy. Not happy is the wrong word, but he was that smile, that embrace he had with, with Kirby afterwards was like a proud papa, you know? I really do. I mean – I was surprised at how happy he seemed. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, the team throughout the year was not one that he thought was going to win, right? You all had a bunch of injuries. It wasn't your best team. Still, right, was right there. So I think he was just happy to be there. You know? No, I think so because there have been several articles throughout the year about how this was a different Saban, that this team had made so many mistakes throughout the year, but instead of yelling at them, he was – propping him up and building him up. Maybe he's getting older, more mellow. Uh, me and my friends talked in a prior podcast, you know, predicting how much more years Saban has. My guess is he'll coach forever because that's just how it's going to be. What, what, what do you all think? How many more years he got left in him? I don't know. Somebody was funny. I was reading an article uh, either yesterday or the day before, and he had a quote that somebody asked about retirement. He goes, what, do you think I'm going to jump off into an abyss? And so I, I don't see him slowing down anytime soon. I don't think so either. Um, he's in his early 70s, right? But I think he's got, uh, I mean, five, ten more years at the top of his game, right? 
I, I think so. I think he'll be there at least five. And so you were at the game. You were there with your wife and some friends. T- tell me from an Alabama's fans' perspective. We have ad nauseum talked about Georgia fans' thoughts during the game, but but what was y'all's headspace at different points through the game? When Mike Williams went down, I turned to everybody around me. I said, "Ball game! Congrats!" I literally started shaking people's hand. I just, I said, "I said we don't have the horses." At yeah. that point, I said, "You know," because what was interesting is even the the game plan was pretty brilliant at first. They couldn't get it in the end zone, but Alabama moved the ball up and down the field with the threat of Williams over the top. They were running those short passes. But when that threat disappeared and the young guys just didn't step up, I knew that it was it was going to be a problem. Devastating injury, you know, with Mechie going down beforehand. Um, injuries are part of the game, though. I mean, you know, Georgia had their fair, share, their fair share as well. Alabama has made an excuse, which I think is great, but – that those last couple of drives, you didn't have the home run threat over the top. It changed the perspective of the game. I, I did not feel that way. I did not feel comfortable when he went down. That was going to be it. Uh, it took me until the Ringo pick six to feel comfortable. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, what, what got me when he went down was Hall, who dropped several passes, the freshman who came in, had been talking all year about how he should be playing. And, you know, I don't know if you saw this. It was either earlier this week or last week. Saban came out and said, we had three players who had the chance to step up at the game and did not. He goes, we had our top three cornerbacks out and we lost our two receivers, but we had three people who were very good behind them who didn't do it. And, you know, then the past Alabama's always had that guy step up. And this year it just didn't. But as I've told numerous people, the winning had gone our way so many times that you knew just the law of averages it was going to come back. And That's kind of where I landed is that Georgia's season was so much more dominant than Alabama's. I mean, y'all's lost to Texas A&M, should have lost at Auburn, yes. right? So it wasn't, it wasn't really the championship caliber team of the years past. But then the SEC game, y'all kicked Georgia's ass. So it's like you just didn't know. Um, Georgia fans were not comfortable in that game at all. I can tell you our section, me, my friends, like it was never a comfortable feeling. Um, fourth quarter, we started getting rolling, right? Started, started getting a little more fun. But 26-18, Alabama has the ball. What are you thinking? I just – I didn't have any confidence in the receivers that were left. And that was the one issue. <clears throat> I was I, – I, I thought 26-24 is inevitable, two-point conversion – 26-26, I'm like, here we go again. I was at the game in 2017-2018 with Tua. Um, I was just – I was getting flashbacks. But No, well, the, the interesting thing is, you know, usually Alabama in the years past has always had a great team, and the other team may have the stud individual players. <clears throat> but this year Alabama had the best player on the field in Will Anderson. I mean, if Bryce Young's a close second, but Will Anderson was the best player out there, and the team didn't have as much talent – compared to Georgia's defense, was just unreal. That's a really interesting perspective. that I've not heard someone say it like that before. You're exactly right. The Georgia team was almost like the old Alabama teams with the quarterback, quote, case manager, stud defense, facing off against, you know, the Heisman Trophy winner and the best defensive player in the country. So that's a, that's a really smart perspective. So speaking of Stetson, um, I heard some Alabama fans say they would prefer to have JT Daniel playing over Stetson. 
Not me. Not you. <laughs> I just Daniels has the ability to beat you. I don't think Bennett does. So on, I would, own, on its own, what I mean. You yeah. Know? So I, I I tend to agree with you. I've had this discussion at nauseum. His fourth quarter was amazing. You can you can point to reasons why he made some of these throws, but the first three quarters he looked very overmatched. Um, and when you put him against a primetime team like Alabama, I think you're right. I think it might be a little big for him. Something something was up with JT Daniel. I never was was kind of on his side. Um, something just didn't kind of feel right with me. But yeah, I heard some Alabama fans were like, "Y'all are crazy." Like. Like, we would prefer to see JT Daniel in the game. I'm like, okay, if you say so. Well, what I think is going to be interesting is this year. Because with Stetson coming back and people not hanging around long, and Georgia has those studs coming in, and the stud who waited, how's Kirby going to manage that? It's going to be. Him coming back is not something that a lot of people are very happy about. Um, he probably should have ridden off in the sunset and gone off and been the championship quarterback forever. But. We'll see. I kind of agree with you. Um, Alabama's loaded next year, right? Next year should be a pretty good team. Yeah. I mean, I think Jordan Alabama probably will be battling um, back and forth in some way, shape, or form for the next however, many long, however long. How does Alabama view Georgia's arrival now? I still like Georgia. It was like, well, granted, I have half my house as Georgia fans, but I said, look, we all hate teams that wear orange. Florida, Auburn, and Tennessee. So, you know, I mean <laughs> – yeah, we're united in our, in our dislike for those teams. Um, but I'm just – I'm curious. Like, I feel like an Alabama fan kind of dismisses Auburn now, right? Um, Florida is not there. Georgia's – Georgia and Clemson, I guess, are the two biggest kind of threats. Well, as I told somebody, uh, another plaintiff's lawyer who's a big Georgia fan, who's a buddy of mine, I told him years ago, I said, you watch, Kirby's going to build a heck of a program. and He's done a great job. He's taken the Saban model, yes. right? I mean, he's he's taken exactly what he learned and is, um, you know, is now running it running it back to perfection. So, the only thing he's going to have to do this year is what Saban had to do was when he benched Jalen Hurts for Tua. Is Kirby willing to do that? That's you know, I mean, because that was a big deal those years ago. Because I mean, Hurts was the reigning, you know, freshman of the year or reigning. All like SEC offensive oh, yeah. player of the year, and then two was came unknown. Two was unknown. Yeah, that's the question. I mean, does 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 Rick have the not Rick? Wow, I don't know if I said Rick. That's crazy. Does Kirby have the the kind of cojones to do that mid game? I thought if there ever was a time to do it, it was in the third quarter against Alabama in this in this championship game because he, the ball wasn't going anywhere. He clearly was going to stick with stats, and so. We'll find out. I mean, that's what's going to be fun is uh, every year it, it just keeps running back. But um, we won't stop talking about it, that's for sure. No, and it's nice to have to, you know, two good programs that actually don't play each other all that often. So when they do, it's, you know, their yeah. games are a lot of fun. And I really do enjoy coming to games in Atlanta, so I don't have to go that far. <laughs> that's right. Well, the hat you're wearing today is a combo uh, Braves hat and Alabama hat, which I've not seen that before. I picked that one up at the stadium. It's a, at the Brave Stadium. And they did the you know the team hat combo ones, and so I actually have two or three of them. You're a big Braves fan. I'm a big Braves fan. You've got season tickets. I've got that awesome um, table area. Yes. Talk about that because I think that that's, that that is the most underappreciated seat in the house at Turner. Right? I'm saying Turner now. I'm I'm I'm, I'm like going back five years at, at, at Truist. The uh, that table is awesome. We. Uh, 
the guy who got us in the season ticket group years ago, uh, we were went and toured it several times before it was built, and we really liked the idea of a half moon shaped table, and it's really good. I mean, it's you know as we were talking about earlier for clients. So if Ann and I take two clients, instead of us being in a row of four where you have to look over each other as you're talking to them, at the half-moon table, you get to literally look. You can have a conversation with all four people. And it's got high-top bar chairs that are backed, and you're right behind home plate. You just, it's, the, it's the best seat. In the, it's one of the best seats in the house. The Delta Club is awesome. People love that. But I like your setup because, like you said, when you go, especially with, with a family of four or with work, if you're not sitting next to that person, like you ain't having much interaction. But that table gives you that option. You're standing. You're sitting at a bar stool. You're at that, yeah, you know, like you said, the the, the half moon shape. Um, they're all sold out, man. We 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 tried. They are all sold out. And yeah, well, I hope they figure out what's going on because I really don't want to get shorted on games this year. What have they told y'all, season ticket holders? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Me neither. <laughs> and I mean, I'll tell you what the. I don't. Were you at the game three last year? Uh, World Series. No, game three of the Brewers, the uh, the the AL or the NLDS. Yeah, I was at four where Freddie hit the home run off of a hater. So we went to the day game for NLDS and had the table, and that's the loudest I've ever heard the stadium in a day game. I mean, but we were literally. You know, had beers flowing and just would. I remember seeing pictures. I think Brian Karen was with you. I remember seeing yeah, he pictures. walked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can. Those tables, you can kind of hold court up there, and people kind of come and go. Um, did you get some World Series games? Did we went to? I was literally now with my group. Other people had the table, but so I was sitting right next to where uh, Duvall's grand slam landed, and I was thought that was going to be a great game, and then it wasn't. And then the game before it was, that was a great game for the first two innings. That was incredible. And then it got bad. And then for the fun thing for the game before, I guess that was game. Uh, was that game? That was game four. The back to back Solaire and Dansby. Yes, we were uh, we were sitting up a little bit, just just where we were able to get tickets. The crowd was rowdy as could be, and that was a lot of fun. I was at game three. That was the game that was it was raining, it was freezing. Well, not freezing cold, but it was cold and rainy. That was the went with a no hitter. Went into the the eighth inning. Right. Um, Travis Darno hit a home run that was like two feet from me and where my dad were sitting. But the crowd was awesome. Bring baseball back. Can, can, can these? I mean, so today's date is is uh, the twenty third of February. I read today that the the union and the players rep met for like two hours yesterday and went backwards in their negotiations. Like, what the hell's going on? Well, you know, this is what's frustrating, I guess, with you and I did. It's like, well, they met for 15 minutes and walked out. Well, there is no trial here. You have no excuse. You've got to get it done. And I, I'm not picking sides, but when the players reject a mediator, it's it's obnoxious because, look, y'all have no choice but to get this done. Yeah, so that that's a good point. Like, when we negotiate, we're negotiating against a trial date because that's the alternative. Either you neg- resolve the case or it goes to trial. They're negotiating against a, a – spring training date that's now passed and then an opening day that's coming up in a couple weeks, but they don't seem to be putting much concern over that. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to reach an agreement. And so the longer they take mouths to God's ears, they just make themselves look bad. Both sides. (laughs) Yeah. The fan, the the fans end up getting bitter and angry and, you know, I, I I don't know where I, I fall on team fan where, you know, play, pay the players what they you know deserve. Owners make their money, but let's just watch some freaking baseball. 
The other things that come out in the in the news the last couple of days are not very positive on Freddie Freeman. Um, they've got to sign Freddie. You know, we're gonna th- this podcast will be published next week, so maybe between our day of talking and this getting sent out, there'll be a deal bit get done. But why won't they just pay him? Corporate faceless ownership. I guess. I mean, it's. I guess. The the other interesting thing is nobody else paid him what he was asking at first either. So I, but. You know, the one nice thing is we never know what's going on with the Braves negotiations. I will say this. Anthropolis runs the tightest ship I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the benefit of the doubt goes to him, right? I mean, I think that, that he he's earned all of our kind of trust. He's going to push the right buttons. I just I just worry that Liberty Media won't give him, you know, the, the capital he needs to get this deal done with Freddie. I think it will be a catastrophic blow to the city, to the Braves, the goodwill they built up if they let him walk. And I just get tired of getting called a mid-market team when Atlanta's a big city and it's got a big market. And, you know, I think that's been a, you know, a misnomer that they've been more than happy to perpetuate so they don't have to spend. That's right. That's right. No, we're a, we're a top 10 city in the country, yet we're lumped in the middle because our corporate ownership, you know, won't let us spend. But I don't know. Ho- hopefully, you know, this all this all gets better. The last thing I want to talk to you about, though, because I know it's important to you, um, and it's important, you know, it's of interest, are, you know, these fly fishing trips that you go on out west. Yes. Which uh, I've never been fly fishing, but I know that you love them. So talk real quick. We're almost running out of time, but I want you to hit a few of the places you've gone make the listeners kind of jealous of the places that you've gone so they can think about, hey, maybe we can make a trip like that. Well, usually we go out to the middle of nowhere. It's a little town called Chama, New Mexico. And uh, How do you spell that? C-H-A-M-A. You fly into Albuquerque and you drive three hours and you're almost on the Colorado-Mexico border. Oh, dear. Okay. And it's you get up and you're staying at this lodge that the Georgia O'Keeffe's art broker owns. And... Um, it's on a 22,000-acre ranch, and they've got a chef. and So they cook breakfast. You go fish for three hours. You're on a stream. My phone doesn't work. I about to say, probably pretty good cell coverage there. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, their lodge is fine where I'm going to fish it. So it doesn't work. And, you know, you're literally just sitting there casting into the water and, you know, trying to do it right to make uh, the fish bite. And, you know, I took one of our good friends last year, Tony, who'd never been fly fishing, and I wasn't sure how he'd like it. You know, because and he goes, it, this is it, Tony Kalka. Did, did he buy all the gear and get all all looking good for it? He, he did. He made sure he looked good. And uh, but at the end, he goes, "That's a lot of fun." He goes, "It really is something when you work that hard and you lay it in the water right. You don't spook the fish, and they, you know, they bite the fly and you land it." And then so I mean, I've never been in fly fishing. What what is the technique? Well, they tell you it's ten to two, but a lot of times we're fishing on these rivers where you've got you know log or trees right behind you grass so you're literally it's however you could make it work trying to get that fly into the water into the certain area because you've got to put it you'll you'll get on a when i say a run it's not the slow water but you know where you're looking at a creek where it starts running a little faster what they want you to do is put it up in the fast water that's where it lands so it doesn't spook the fish. So then it comes down, and then when it slows down to, to a little pool at the end, once the fly goes in there, that's usually where the fish are hanging out. And so they want you to throw it in there, not to spook the fish, make it look right, don't have your line in the water, and then it goes in there, and then you've got to set downstream. And 
and do Good that. for you. I, I think I probably would have uh, some difficulty pulling all that off, but y'all, y'all caught a bunch of fish last time. We did, and I'm actually heading to uh, Belize at the end of March to go bonefish, permit, and tarpon fly fishing with my brother. Now, those guides down there aren't nice. They yell and scream at you. <laughs> they rid- ridicule you for your uh, you know, lack of ability to catch fish. And down there, you really, it's the 10 to 2, but you've got to be able to cast 70 to 100 feet, and which is not easy on a fly. And then to get it right in front of it, last time I went, I caught 100 bonefish over four days, which was really nice. And then cook them right there? No, every we do all catch and release. Okay. So it's all just the sport of catching them. The sport of catching them. Very good. Well, uh, maybe one day I'll join you in those trips. I can't promise I will add anything other than you know, I'm, you know, I'm generally a fun person to be around, but don't, don't know how good I can do catching fish. But uh, listen, Jason, this was great to have you on here. Um, you know, I want to make the point that, you know, because we, we do get along, we are friends. When we litigate, we're, we're, we're doing the best job for our clients. Don't need each other any favors at all. Um, we've never tried a case against each other. I think that's because me and you just can find out what that proper value is and and reasonable minds can sometimes disagree but we can get to a range that is at least fair for both sides and so i i respect that about you uh, i appreciate the job your firm does and uh you know when i see your name pop up on the other side i'm like okay i've got a, i've got one of the good ones over here yeah no i'd much rather see you than andy so Golder, <laughs> but you know so <laughs> good, good good shot at golden i like that uh yeah like, damn it got thrown up on, the, on this case again so uh, real quick, t- tell you the website of your of your law firm. Talk about any other cases that y'all might want to have other than like an insurance defense case in case someone has a need out there that's listening. Uh, our, lo- our website is uh, www.gwdlawfirm.com. We, uh, we do insurance defense. We also have a uh, MedMal lawyer now on staff who's doing MedMal, but she represents doctors in their negotiations of all their contracts. And anything like that. We also have a Wooten does tax work. So if you ever need any tax work, we can help. For individuals or for corporations? Uh, both. He focuses a lot on fighting the IRS for individuals who feel like they've been taken advantage of. Okay, cool. And then we, we, we kind of glossed over the locations of your offices. Um, so talk about where y'all are at. We have an office here in Atlanta. We're about to open another one in Austell in a few weeks and we've got uh, one in valdosta savannah montgomery alabama and birmingham alabama okay so there's needs in alabama needs in georgia south georgia metro atlanta you got everybody covered and we'll go the whole state we'll go wherever you want us to go i love it i love it well listen jason uh pleasure having you we need to have Ann, your wife come next time uh, people like her better than me anyway so <laughs> i like both of you guys but i'm a big i'm a big ann gower fan too so uh thank you my friend uh everybody hope y'all enjoyed this podcast with jason darneal and until next time keep chopping